Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meniga. In this episode, I talk with Jamie McGee and Adam Hollowell. Jamie is a novelist, playwright, and essayist, and Adam teaches ethics at Duke University, and they both are the co-authors of the recently released book, You Mean It or You Don't, James Baldwin's Radical Challenge. You can get connected with Jamie and Adam and their work in the links in the episode description. I also want to personally invite you to Theology Beer Camp this October 12th through the 15th, 2022 in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Theology Beer Camp is a time for you to meet some of your favorite theology podcasters, sip on your favorite beverages, and nerd out. You'll meet people like Pete Enns, Dr. Robin Henderson Espinoza, Trip Fuller, and even me. And if you register with the link in the episode description and use the promo code APT, you can receive $50 off your ticket. Theology Beer Camp. Come thirsty, get nerdy. I hope to see you there. Today we have Jamie McGee and uh, Adam Hollowell. So we have Jamie and Adam uh, today, and Jamie is a novelist, a playwright, and an essayist. Uh, and Adam is, teaches ethics at uh, Duke University. Uh, and you all, I'm sure, do lots of other things in the world. But who is Jamie McGee to Jamie McGee? And then I'll ask the same exact question to you, Adam. But yeah, Jamie, if you want to start out first, who is Jamie McGee to Jamie McGee? Love that. Uh I am an experimental novelist, I think is how I'd most likely define myself. Oh. Based in Berlin at the moment. So I'm kind of just here, uh making art, meeting cool people. I've been here for a few years, just having fun. Wonderful. And Adam, who is Adam to Adam? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like sometimes that changes day to day, but the continuous things are that I am a partner and a, a father and I am a teacher teach in a variety of different um, settings and venues. And then uh, I think of myself as an ethicist. That's a, a complicated word with a complicated history, but uh, right. it's something that I that I try to do. Lovely. Well, uh, something that you both did together recently is you wrote a book that is just incredible. It's called You Mean It or You Don't, James Baldwin's Radical Challenge. I'm really excited to have a conversation about this book. Uh, before we really kind of dive into the contents of the book, um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about what's something that you learned about James Baldwin and his life and maybe his thought um, as you wrote the book that maybe you didn't know about before. I'm sure you both, if you're writing a book about James Baldwin, you probably knew quite a bit about him uh, before you started writing. But is there anything that came up in the research and writing of the book where you're like, wow, did not know that about him? I'll say for me that um, Jamie and I have been working on this project for seven or eight years at this point. Oh, wow. And I I think that we, we, we can talk more about that, but I, I think that we, the first versions of the project, we gravitated more toward Baldwin's nonfiction and his interviews where he is saying things very directly. And um, with nonfiction, it's, there's no mediating metaphor or mediating narrative. He's just telling you what he thinks about something. And um, one of the real gifts of the project when we turned it into this book was that we made a conscious choice to go back to the fiction and the poetry and to spend more time with it. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think I understood in the early phases when I was captivated by the nonfiction, I, I don't think I understood what uh, an artist he is and how deft he is at communicating through 
story and character and plot. And that is something that I just feel like uh, we encountered in the last year or two that we were working on the book that wasn't there before. And it was great. Lovely. How about for you, Jamie? For me, yeah, I I didn't know how much of a maverick Baldwin was, like how much of um, a loner and a go-your-own-way type of person. I'd always grown up with Baldwin as sort of same pedestal as like Martin Luther King, Maya Angelou, all these really amazing um, Black artists. And of course, he is that. But I also think I was most surprised by just how much Baldwin writes about um, having your own opinion, going against the grain, being okay with pissing people off. Um, and just how much of a weird character he was and how he embraced that weirdness. And and I like that. I think there's a lot about Baldwin that doesn't quite fit with this image I had in my mind of this very like solemn, serious, sort of all-powerful, all-knowing writer. And I really liked getting to know the silly parts and the weird parts and the loner parts of Baldwin. So for me, that was really meaningful. Yeah, he does have a different personality than a lot of the other famous black liberationists and uh civil rights leaders at his time right like he just personally is just a kind of goofy i think that's a good way to describe him he just is a little different than um just in in, in terms of his personality he's a little different than a lot of the others like martin luther king and, and even like someone like malcolm x goofy is a good word for it i like it baldwin's a little goofy i think he doesn't get credit for that just yeah. how weird he is there's videos of him um in documentaries where i think he's just walking around uh, in his underwear at some point i think it might be a documentary takes place in turkey and he's just <laughs> doing his thing just smoking cigarettes just living his best life you know what I'm, right i like that bald one yeah totally no he really you you get like this really wonderful human side of him what is something that you both learned about yourselves as you wrote the book? You said that this project has been seven or eight years. So in those seven or eight years, I'm sure there's something that you learn about yourself when you're working on a project for that long. But yeah, what's something that you learned about yourselves that maybe you didn't know about yourself before? So I'll just give a, a little background, which is that Jamie and I met when Jamie was an undergrad at Duke and I was working at Duke. And we started writing together as a project of prayers so we were reading Baldwin and then using Baldwin's words to prompt prayer writing mm. and I think at that at that point in my life and in that project I felt a sense of prayer as as kind of the the backstop of when you don't know what else to do you pray mm. and when we finished the initial version of this project and put it aside for a while and then came back to write the book I think we both felt the time for prayer had kind of come to an end and that we needed to take up action. And so what I would describe about that I know about myself now that I didn't know at the start is that I contain two things and I don't need to resolve or those two things or choose with those two things. And one of those is I sometimes feel like there's nothing to do but pray. And I sometimes feel like prayer is the last thing that we need right now. <laughs> and that because action is absolutely necessary. And I didn't know that those two things were so resolutely within me <laughs> until the years unfolded and I discovered both of them and realized that neither of them were going away. That's lovely. How about for you, Jamie? What did you learn about yourself? We're seven, eight years. Yeah, because when we started the project, I was still an undergrad and that was also pre-Trump. So a lot's happened. I think personally, I realized all the areas in my life where like, I wasn't reflective and where I could grow um, more. I mean, being queer, being black, being assigned female at birth, all these things. Like, I feel like I am constantly pushing against a lot of pressures just by existing, but I also realized how much I am overlooking and how many structures I am complicit in. And I, one thing I really liked writing the book with Adam was thinking about the actual small everyday ways in which I wasn't getting involved and how I could do that in which I wasn't connecting with my community and how I could do that. 
we very much aimed the book toward people who do want to get involved but aren't quite sure of the next steps and I think I was much more confident in my own activism and my own actions uh, and my own proactivity at the beginning of the book than I was at the end of the book when I realized how much more there was to be done which I actually like as a process kind of a painful process sometimes but a very humbling one and I'm very grateful for it. That's lovely. Before we dive into the challenge that James Baldwin proposes and before we dive into some of the action that you all talk about throughout the book, I think it might be really helpful to learn who James Baldwin is. I'll be honest, it wasn't until like five, maybe six years ago that I learned who he was. Had no idea. I grew up in South Dakota. Like the only person in the civil rights movement we ever learned about was Martin Luther King. And that might've been it. Maybe Malcolm X in high school, but that's about it. And it wasn't until there was that documentary that was released about five or six years ago. Um, And when that came out, I watched it. And I just was like, why have I never heard of this human before? He seems so important. And yet I haven't heard of him yet. And so... For those who are listening who have never heard of James Baldwin before, can you talk a little bit about who he was and why his influence in history is so important? Baldwin was born in 1924 in Harlem in New York City. Um, 1924 seems like a very, very long time ago, but it's not. Um, uh, my, My partner, Rachel's grandmother died a few months ago and she was born in 1924 so baldwin mm-hmm. has been dead for many years but there are still people born in 1924 fully alive and with us and so 1924 is really not that far that long ago um baldwin was uh born to emma burtis jones so he was born uh james jones and then she married the reverend david baldwin a few years after and they went on to have eight children together so baldwin was the older sibling to many many children and so baldwin would often say that he was he was um he lived his childhood with a book in one hand and a baby in the other (laughs) and he's formed by both the world of of the mind and the world of books and also the world of the family and the world of maternal care um, as practiced in his own um, older brother role. Baldwin realized as he finished high school and became a young a young adult, he realized that he needed to get out to be fully who he was. He spent several years as a preacher following in the footsteps of his stepfather and then kind of realized that the life of the arts was calling him and that there was going to be a tension in the Pentecostal world that he was living in. In Harlem, there was going to be a tension between being a preacher and being an artist. Um, mm. We can we can dream and imagine of who Baldwin would have been if he lived in a world where those two things were not antagonistic, but within his world, they were. And so he uh, bought a ticket, a boat, a ticket to ride a boat to Paris and had about $20 in his pocket and took off. And he lived wow. in and out of, I mean, $20 in in uh, the early 1940s was a little more than $20 now, but right. you still know, not much, still not much. Um, and uh, he lived uh, on and off in the U.S. for the rest of his life. He spent years in Turkey. He spent years in France. He uh, came back to the U.S. at several notable points um, to go on sort of uh, tours of the southern states to meet people who were involved in activist work. He was sitting in the audience at the March on Washington. So he was fully present to the American civil rights movement, but he also did that by way of crossing the Atlantic and, and building full lives for himself in mm. other parts of the world. And all of this time uh, from 
his young adulthood on, Baldwin is writing. He's writing novels. He's writing theatrical plays. He's writing poetry. He's writing nonfiction. He's giving interviews. He has this very interesting moment when he's a young author where he realizes that if he, he, he feels uncomfortable sitting for photos, but he realized that if he doesn't do it, they won't have an anchor for the print publications of his work and his interviews. And so he realizes that he's going to have to start sitting for photos if he wants to make it as an artist. And so he, he makes a conscious effort to do that, even though it makes him uncomfortable. And um, he just continues working until uh, the last few years of his life. He is um, living in in France in a, a small uh, a small town and people are coming to see him. He is sick. And he dies in France and his brother, David, walks over to the record player and puts on Amazing Grace when they realize that he's passed. Wow. Wow. And what are some of like the key thoughts that he has that, you know, like still to this day, I think, um, remain with us or ought to shape us in, in our context? Like, what are some of those key pieces? Yeah, I can name at least a couple of them. Um, or at least rather, I'll, I'll focus on the one that I think means the most, I think, to me and my community, speaking a lot from like the queer Black community, um, he has this one really beautiful quote, like, go the way your blood beats. He obviously says a lot about civil rights, and I let Adam get into the nitty-gritty of that. Um, but I do like the way he addresses sort of identity and belonging and being, um, and how important it is to, for the old cliche, like, actually be yourself and follow your own whims, follow your own passions, even when the world is pushing against you. Um, and at least in the circles that I'm in, like that quote comes up a lot. It might not be as famous as some of his other quotes, but yeah, I think identity, standing for yourself. Adam, how would you, he wrote so much, which is a beautiful question, but it's such a difficult question because he obviously wrote books and books and books of things. Yeah, I think one of the ways to think about it is around the role that he played in the civil rights movement. And so we commonly attribute the, the role of preacher in the civil rights movement to Martin Luther King Jr. We uh, think about people like Medgar Evers or Thurgood Marshall as the lawyers, uh, as, as people who worked through the law for justice. And then there are, of course, a whole host of people who are simply forgotten or ignored in history. And I'm thinking about people like Ella Baker or Septima Clark who were working for um, democratic activism to build power in communities or working to build schools that were educating people better than uh, the white run schools would educate them. And so if you asked Baldwin what his role was in this landscape, he would often say as the artist. Mm -hmm. And so he found, he, he, he sort of felt himself to be contributing in a meaningful way, which is that he felt that his art was advancing the project of racial justice, but he also felt that it was art and it had to be art first. Right. And so he didn't feel that he was a preacher. He didn't feel that he was uh, meant to give you a tangible roadmap for what the next steps would be. And it's why we often, when you read people now, they'll often call Baldwin a prophet. And the reason I think they do that is, is in part because he's deeply inspiring, but also because there is a level of abstraction in the way, in the way that sometimes the prophets, um, you know, say uh, things like um, give away all your money and you think, um, okay, where do I start? <laughs> you know, like, how does that, what does it mean to actually do that? And I think that Baldwin, was sometimes a little light on the details, but always big on the sort of significance and the magnitude of what was required. And that's why he gets cast in the role as a prophet. But I think that's also connected to the role of the artist, which is that the artist is often naturally positioned for those kinds of words and those kinds of messages. So kind of along those lines, and this is where the title of the book comes, but so at one point he has a speech and 
A student asks, you said that the liberal facade and being liberal is not enough. Well, what is? What is necessary? And Baldwin comments that he says that uh, it's commitment. And that is what is necessary. You mean it or you don't. So obviously that's where the title comes. And this like whole kind of conversation around like liberalism seems to be really important. It was obviously an important conversation that was happening then. And it still seems to be a conversation that's important now, especially in light of now we're a couple years from the murder of George Floyd. Um, But this like whole conversation around liberalism and how that intersects with black liberation. Uh, and so anyway, I'm, my, my curiosity around that is like, what would someone like Baldwin think liberalism is and why is that type of liberalism not enough? Because we often think about, oh, well, if you're Democrat or if you're liberal, then you're progressing society. And what we have found is obviously that's not the case. And obviously that's something that James Baldwin was already keen on. So I'm just really curious around like, what is meant by liberalism in this context and why is it not enough? Yeah. So I'll tell you my, my favorite definition of the white liberal is someone who thinks that there are good white people and bad white people. And I'm one of the good ones. Mm. It's a three, it's a three part definition. There are good white people. There are bad white people. And I'm one of the good ones and you need all three parts to be a white liberal. That why, why do I find that definition helpful? Um, and it, that's not Baldwin's definition. I, I actually can't remember where I heard it, which is a, a classic white liberal mistake of not remembering your sources. So the reason why I think that's an important definition is because it captures the psychology of wanting to understand yourself as on the right side of history. And to be clear, Baldwin doesn't say that you should want to understand yourself on the wrong side of history. Baldwin just says it is not enough to be focused on how you understand yourself, that Mm. changing your own self-understanding is not the end goal of the process of liberation, but rather an essential part of the process of liberation for all people. And so for Baldwin, white liberals are people who are more focused on their own standing than they are the material conditions of black lives. And they're more focused on holding the right set of beliefs than they are uh, taking up meaningful action for a better world for other Mm -hmm. people in this particular case for Black Americans. That is both an enduring challenge, meaning that, um, you know, there's... Uh, we were working on this book during the pandemic. And so I would often just take walks in my neighborhood because I didn't have anywhere else to walk or go because we were stuck in the house. And I would walk by houses that had signs out front that said, in this house, we believe. And then a list of precepts. And I'm not against any of the precepts on the, we believe sign, but it is a declaration of belief, not a declaration of behavior. Mm. And in fact, behavior is not something that you declare behavior is something that you do. Right. And I think that Baldwin grew very tired of hearing of, of encountering white people, to, to be clear, white people like me, he grew tired of encountering white people and feeling like they wanted to convince him that they were one of the good ones and feeling like they wanted to convince him that they held the right beliefs. And he wanted to reject both of those as, as in any way significant markers of work toward liberation. Mm. All right, Jamie, I'll let you, I'll let you take the, the problems from there. I think liberalism sort of it necessitates and it lives in this like this complacency and I think almost this naivety this this inherent belief in a system 
and a sort of unwillingness to disassemble anything, to become uncomfortable, to, uh, to actually go against the things you've been taught your entire life. And I think that sort of a willing naivety, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, like I, like my parents would describe themselves as liberal, for example, um, like very well-meaning, but also sort of this unwillingness, this willful ignorance um, to actually conceive of a world beyond what they can touch and beyond what makes them comfortable. And I think that until people are sort of willing to do the intense, painful, sometimes just all-consuming work of dissecting the world around you and take the painful steps. And I think that, sorry, trying to think like how to phrase it very much. Um, I've been talking to my parents a lot about this uh, psychology. I'm trying to get all the words together, I think, um, because I very much run into the same problems with them with trying to explain like why the good intentions aren't quite enough. Mm. Like why just surrounding yourself with like the right people or saying the right things, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think liberalism almost has this, the problem of when you think that you're already doing well enough, because like Adam said, you have the right beliefs, then it prevents you from actually wanting to step beyond those beliefs and actually do some sort of action, especially when that action will inconvenience you in any way whatsoever. And I think the unwillingness to be inconvenienced is really what's stopping a, a lot of meaningful change. And I think mm -hmm. that's why it's so destructive is because it's this unwillingness, but also knowing that there's also unwillingness to like sort of self-reflect and believe that you also have to change. Mm. Makes sense. One of the things that both of you have touched on is that what especially many white liberals will do is they want to think about themselves in the right way, that I'm the right kind of white person or whatever, right? Like they want to, but it's all about how they perceive themselves, right? And so one of the things that I see happen, not just at an individual level, but within institutions then is, well, if we need to perceive ourselves the right way, then all we need to do uh, for racial justice is simply diversify. Just make sure that we have a black person and a brown person and a gay person and so on and so forth, right? And as long as we look like we are doing the right thing, then we're doing the right thing. And so that's oftentimes some of the liberal responses I've seen. But the thing is, is oftentimes the institutions that are doing that are the very institutions that are oppressing people, right? Like even like something like a prison, making sure we just have enough black and brown and gay people um, working our prison systems and that enough will uh, be the, the right look for us to look like we're doing some meaningful change rather than actually abolishing a system like prisons, right? And so kind of along those lines then, it seems like abolition then is a kind of politic that's necessary. It's not just simply enough to diversify or think about yourself in the right way, but you actually need an actual politic. And this is one of the things that really uh, drives me nuts around kind of the more liberal conversation is that you actually need a politic if we're going to have any meaningful liberation in the world. And I happen to think that abolitionism is one of those types of politics that can actually be helpful. Um, and so anyway, whether or not you're abolitionist, and whether or not you think it's a good way of going about things in the world, I'm really curious, like, it does seem like something like abolitionism is a you mean it or you don't. Like, it takes a side and you either mean abolitionism or you don't. And it really, you know, it, it draws a line in the sand. And so I'm really curious what your thoughts are on that when it comes to having a politic like abolitionism, because it really does seem the kind of drawing a line in the sand and really making people say they mean it or they don't. So anyway, I'm just kind of curious around your thoughts around that. I'll say that for me, 
I'm hesitant to use they language when talking about um, people who need to make a choice because the the language of Baldwin is direct address to me. And mm. when Baldwin says what the white world relinquishes in one hand, it obsessively clutches in the other. He's talking about me. <laughs> He's He is also talking about my institutions. He is also talking about the places where I live and the, the um, things that I'm not in control of, right? He's also talking about people that I have no relationship with, people who are connected to me in ways that are very, very, very obscure, but he is intimately talking about me. And I think that that, that encounter that Baldwin has with the student where the student says, uh, the student is genuinely confused. So Baldwin has mentioned in the speech that being liberal is not enough. And the student genuinely doesn't understand what Baldwin meant because he, he thought he had it. And Baldwin says commitment. And one of the things I really like about that is that he, he isn't actually laying out the exact politic for you. So Mason, I, I agree completely that a politic is necessary, but Baldwin doesn't actually fill in the politic for mm. the person. And I think that that's part of Baldwin's own sense that we don't arrive fully, perfectly, completely at a specific politic. And, but rather that, you know, we are always in the process of arriving of contributing and so you know you mean it or you don't and the answer is commitment that's something that you can return to over and over again it isn't you, you don't commit once and then you're done mm -hmm. um, it's something that you either either live into or live away from and of course the that encounter of Baldwin with the student is itself an allusion to Jesus's encounter with the young ruler who can't who leaves in sadness right and that is that is uh the reason why we liked that illusion is in part because I will encounter Baldwin over and over again and leave unable to do the thing that he demands of me. Mm -hmm. I didn't write this book with Jamie because I have done all of the things that Baldwin demanded of me. That's not how the encounter works. I wrote the book because I have encounters with Baldwin over and over again and have to ask myself, am I going to walk away or am I going to continue forward? To touch briefly on the question of abolition, um, I do completely agree with you because on a practical level I do very much see people saying because like Black Lives Matter until you actually discuss uh, what practical steps should be taken then to disassemble right. the police force or to offer alternative forms of justice uh, other than the incarceration system and then people are sort of like but like if we didn't have the police mm. everyone would get robbed all the time and you're like, okay all right. all right this fell apart really fast and I think that is because I, I appreciate that you brought up the question of abolition because I think that really requires that someone sort of reassess their notions of like safety and reassess like their pillars of um, well, what they believe the pillars of society to be and sort of ask people to confront the sort of implicit biases they have uh, that, you know, police are good or that we need some sort of law and order, that we need some sort of right and wrong, and that there must always be criminal for you to feel good about yourself. And I think that that's, so you're right, abolition in particular, I think forces people to sort of confront those things and ask those questions. And the answer is usually pretty hard, not always great. Right. And I totally understand, you know, like obviously Baldwin in this moment is like not going to articulate some like robust politic of abolitionism. And I totally understand that. And obviously he and because of like his artistry, he's going to speak artistically and more abstractly. Uh, and I think that's part of the beauty of his work, too. 
He'll get closer than you think he will. That's true. That's <laughs> he true. is an artist, but he'll he'll get pretty close to abolition. He has a, a children's book where he he writes. Uh, there's this interlude of where a child. So the, the children's book is called Little Man, Little Man, and there's an interlude where a child encounters uh, a scene where someone's running from the police, and it's pretty clear that um, he doesn't see a constructive way forward for the police officer in that mm-hmm. community in a way that the children can grow up to be fully human. Right. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. So you mentioned before that Baldwin grew up uh, a child of a preacher and even was preaching at one point um, early on in his life. So in, in some way, shape, or form, he certainly had a theology. Now, obviously, he was not like a professional theologian, but you can certainly see theology kind of emerge in all of his work, whether it's his poetry or children's books or um, nonfiction, whatever it might be. So can you talk a little bit about what you think the kind of theology that James Baldwin had? Like, what did, what did he think about God? What did he think about sort of these ultimate questions that theology wrestles with? Yeah, we're not we're not pausing because there's no answer. We're pausing because there's there are a lot of answers. Um, <laughs> so so Baldwin was asked quite frequently, "Are you Christian or not?" That was a common question that he he, he essentially got two questions over and over and over again. And and one was, "Tell us about your sexuality," and the other was, "Tell us about your faith." And he often answers the sexuality question with. Uh, reference to God, and he offers often answers the faith question with an answer to sexuality. So <laughs> he would he would say things. Like, Sounds like a good uh, mystic, go, if you ask me. That's exactly yeah, that's right. What they that's would right. Do. That's exactly right. Um, so so pretty fervently, Bost, uh, Baldwin would resist the the label Christian, but he and he did so sometimes in creative ways and sometimes in more typical ways. He would say things like, "I've never had a problem with Jesus." Or, you know, I've never, I never left, um, I never left Jesus. I, I only left the church or things like that. And, and those are, you know, fairly common ways that people describe. James Baldwin, um, the original ex-evangelical. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. There are other ways in which Baldwin says things like the love of God is, is um, care for each other, which um, for Baldwin, 
it's interesting because I, I often think about C.S. Lewis as the four loves when Baldwin is describing love because he genuinely mixes all of the loves when, it, you know, we, uh, they're obviously characters who have very, very, very uh, significant differences. But I often think of Baldwin as someone for whom Eros is never very far away when he's talking about love. And it's much closer than, than what we would usually think. Anyway, to answer your question, Baldwin never stops using the language of scripture. Baldwin is, is quotes scripture all the way through to the very end of his life. His books are completely filled with theological references and, and theologies. He never felt that God abandoned him or that he abandoned God. He felt that those two things could only be true the more that he became fully himself. And so Baldwin would, would often say things like, um, I'm God is not the only person who's going to have some questions <laughs> when this is over. Uh, and so there are, I mean, you, there are books and chapters and books and chapters written on Baldwin's theology and Baldwin's either connection to or rejection of Christian theology. But in general, he uses the language of God and the language of love. And he mixes those two. And often when people ask him who he loves, he says, something about God. And often when people ask him about God, he talks about people that he loves. Mm. I think that for Baldwin, um, notions of God and like true God and liberation go hand in hand. There are two mm. quotes of his that I really love. That I would love to read if you don't mind. Of course. Yay. Okay. One says, and I think this might be my favorite. Um, I conceive of God, in fact, as a means of liberation and not as a means to control others, which I think really speaks to um, his experience growing up in the church as a boy, learning both the liberation, the love of God, but also, of course, hand in hand with the hypocrisies he sees around him and navigating that for the rest of his life. And the second, a bit hand in hand with that, if the concept of God has any validity or any use, it can only be to make us larger, freer and more loving. If God cannot do this, then it's time we got rid of him. And I think there he's talking more about God in terms of the church and manifestations of God through the church and ways people being controlled or not. But I think overall, both conceptions, like Adam said, speak to the fact that he wasn't willing to step away completely. And he also didn't totally disavow the church, but he did very much have this sense of God that had to grow with him and grow with his like liberatory beliefs over time. And there's sort of the sense of this constant wrestling with God in all of his works that I think is really valuable and really relatable. Mm. I'm very much involved in the process theology world. And there's so many times where I read Baldwin and kind of get that sense that obviously I'm not going to say that he's a process theologian, but there are like bits and pieces there. Where I'm like, this kind of resonates a little bit, like this idea that God is growing and changing along with him. And yeah, there, there's definitely bits and pieces there where I'm like, eh, I, if he would have known a process theology, maybe, maybe he would have like been like, yeah, I'm down with that. Yeah, I would think that uh, resonance is a common occurrence for process theologians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that I love about your book is that the, at the end of every single chapter, you list some really practical ways for readers to get engaged with these issues of justice. So what are some of the practical tips and um, examples that you give in the book that right now, for whatever reason, they're just standing out to you? I mean, you have so many um, throughout the book, but like as I ask that question, what are the like immediate ones that are coming to mind that you would like listeners to know about so that once they get done listening to this podcast or even before they, you know, they can pause it now and then go out and do some of these things or be a part of some of these things. But yeah, what are some of the ones that like you would encourage right now if if somebody was, you know, to pause this podcast and go out and be a part of some of this lab liberation in the world? <laughs> um, for me, it would be 
the acts from um, the last chapter, which is all about art. And for me, that's really important because Adam, I'm glad you keep bringing up that Baldwin was an artist because art was Baldwin's role in the movement. I think art can sometimes be an undervalued role in the movement mm-hmm. um, and just in liberation in general. And so toward the end of the book, we talk about just, even if you don't consider yourself an artist, the importance of making some sort of art, not professionally, but just for yourself to sort of process your emotions or explore new points of view, or just to figure out how to cope with the craziness of the world. And at the same time, also looking in your local community and seeing um, what artists, like artists of color or incarcerated artists or queer artists or any sort of artists, like local artists are making and doing, because I guarantee you there's always so much going on that is underfunded, underappreciated, is underpublicized, doesn't matter. I've been enough like really semi-wonderful sometimes terrible like community art events to know that there's always something even if it's gonna be honest like even if it's not really great professional grade everything that you're used to there's still a lot of heart in a lot of these things and there's still a lot of people there who need uh to be supported and need to be lifted up who need to like to have the resources to take the art to the next level and so i really think just looking around and getting involved in the community art around you uh, not only will it open your mind to you new know, ideas, but that will also like introduce you to new people, help you see perspectives of these people. Um, especially if you're, I mean, like, especially going to be honest, like if you're like a straight white cisgender liberal, then I think that this is especially important because it very much connects you like directly to like the hearts of the people that you're professing to care about, or the worlds of these people, or like all of these things. Um, I was thinking like, getting involved in in art like isn't isn't difficult I think that that's one of the easier um like acts in our book because there's so much and because there's no such thing as doing it wrong and I also think just like art in and of itself is a very accepting and like life-giving and wonderful thing uh that is not always appreciated so mm-hmm. for me that's the most important one mm-hmm. Adam what about you uh I think you could leave the audio on of this podcast and and pull out your phone and search um racial justice efforts in your area, and you're probably going to end up with somebody's contact information because all of this work is already being done by people, and we can't give you that person's email address in your area. That's not right. <laughs> we, we can't do that. It's not what we do. Um, but if you pull out your phone and Google it, you'll find somebody. And then reaching out to that group or to that person and entering that space with a sense of genuine curiosity and humility and wondering you know, I, I think wondering what work is yours to do and what work is not yours to do is the big question. And so, you know, when Jamie and I were working on this, we often talked about what what words are my words to write and what words are Jamie's words to write. There's earlier drafts of the book where we split the pages in half and Jamie writes some words and I write some words. And we ultimately decided to write one, one in one voice for the book. But I like that question of thinking about what's your work to do and mm. not and your work not to do. And so finding some kind of contact in your area where the work is already being done and then walking into that space with some Mm -hmm. curiosity and humility. I love that you bring that up, Adam, because, you know, everybody has their own gifts. Some people have money that they can be in in to support some of this work. Some people have time and energy and they can support that this work in their own communities in that way. I mean, there's just so many different things that we all can do. Some of us are artists. Some of us are planners. Some of us are organizers. I mean, there's just so many different things that we're all gifted at and we all have something then that we can contribute into this work because it's going to take all of us. It's going to take all of our gifts. Uh, And Jamie, I really love the fact that you bring up art as like an essential piece to the work of liberation 
because, and this really connects, I think, with Baldwin's work really well, you know, especially in his poetry and some of the fiction that he writes, he's imagining and creating a just world. And it gives us a glimpse of what that world can actually be in our uh, in our very much nonfiction world, this re- this reality that we're living in. And that's one of the things that I think artists are able to really offer us is that they're able to imagine and create these worlds and they give us a glimpse into the kind of world that we actually can create in the world. And, and I, I'm, I'm certain that you're doing that with your novels and uh, the plays that you write and, and all of the different art that you're creating in the world as well. I agree with you in that the liberatory power of imagination is one of the best and most underutilized tools. Uh, it's yes, wonderful. And people should take more advantage of it. Lovely. So along those lines of getting connected with your local community, um, you know, whatever examples you want to share that you feel comfortable sharing, but what are some of the ways that you've seen this commitment that Baldwin challenges us to have? What is that kind of commitment that you've seen played out in your own communities and churches and et cetera? I always think there's an interesting difference between preachers who refer to themselves, their own behavior as exemplary in a sermon and preachers who refer to the behavior of others as exemplary mm-hmm. in a sermon that like, and one is not better than the other. Cause I think there are reasons why either would be really important in a given situation, but I, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm extremely hesitant to describe myself as exemplary in this kind of like, as an answer to this kind of question, I will say that there's a community of people that I go to and those people have welcomed me when I entered the space with curiosity and humility. And those uh, those people have um, been patient with me when I was not curious and when I was not humble. And so I, I'm thinking of a group in my community that does a very specific kind of work. And it's it's facilitation work. They gather groups of people together and they facilitate. And they have included me in their facilitation space, not to be in control of that space and not to be perfect in that space. And I'm grateful for that. So it is work that is being done in my community that's really effective, but that work is also being done on me in a way that is effective on me. And I'm really grateful for that. Mm. In terms of the commitment I've seen, um, I'm very grateful to be based in Berlin because it's such a political city. And before this, I was in New York, which is in some ways even more of a political city. Um, And I just want to give a shout out and I'm just really amazed, honestly, by a lot of the on the ground organizers, facilitators, um, just everyone here who like there are people here I've met who like give sort of their entire beings to the work of liberation and not in an unsustainable way. I'm not talking about people who like, you know, feel like they have to do too much and burn out. I mean, people who are genuinely trying to sort of imagine and build uh, more sustainable communities and more sustainable worlds and build the connections they actually want to see. Uh, and I, that gives me a lot of hope, I think. I know I personally saw a lot of undoing work um, and a, a lot to change in myself, but I do see a lot of work being done in Berlin specifically. And I think it's a bit easier in Berlin, to be honest, because to be totally fair, the prices of everything are a lot lower. There's not as much, like police don't use their weapons as much. Like you're allowed to go out and demonstrate more. It's easier in a lot of ways Um, and I think I am grateful for that because I think that does allow people to then take more risks um, and to try more things but it also gives me hope that then these same practices one are being replicated in the U.S. and I'm sure they are um, but also can be more 
widespread. And I think a lot of ways it does sort of go hand in hand with abolition. In a lot of ways, like when you defund the police, you can obviously reroute that funding into people who mm. can then use that funding, that extra time, that extra space, that extra space to breathe into making these more sustainable, wonderful communities. And that's a process I see that is slowly being constructed. And that gives me heart. I love that. How do you hope that you mean it or you don't inspires and liberates its readers? Sort of twofold. In one way, I do want it to push and inspire people to go out in their communities and do more. But the same way, I hope it liberates people from the feeling that they have to be perfect before they do something. And the feeling that there's necessarily like a right way and a wrong way. And if I do something wrong, I'm going to mess everything up or make things worse, which in some cases, of course, can be true. But I feel like in the vast majority of cases, it's not necessarily true. And I think there's a fear and a hesitancy and a a desire to be perfect before you make any steps. And I hope that this book can liberate people to feel like they can actually do something and to feel that, yes, they will make mistakes and everyone does, and that it's okay to take accountability for those mistakes and grow from those mistakes, but it's okay to be your own messy, imperfect self as long as you're moving towards something that you find important. Mm. I hope that the book inspires people to into deeper interaction with James Baldwin. You know, you mentioned not knowing who Baldwin was and coming to this encounter. I I had the same experience of living a part of my life when I didn't know who Baldwin was and then having this encounter. And I hope that the book does that. We, we um, try to give you some, some uh, interesting stories (laughs) about Baldwin, but you can also just, uh, you know, you can just Google James Baldwin and, and you'll find a video of him debating William F. Buckley at the Cambridge Student Union. And, and um, it's hard not to watch that and feel inspired. So I hope that it inspires people to encounter James Baldwin. And um, I think the other thing is is that I, I hope it, we, we tell people to read the book with the phone in their hand and there are pretty frequent prompts to look something up in your area or to reach out to this group or to consider joining this list to learn more about X, Y, or Z. And I hope that people do that. I hope that when they leave the book, they have a relationship with someone in their community that they didn't have before and that that relationship will long endure the book and even their memory of the book i you know it would be great if we um if there are two people who who are friends five years from now and cannot remember the occasion of their friendship but but the thing that got it started is that somebody went to a meeting because they read the book and wanted to do something and then the book disappeared from memory and the friendship endured Mm. what i love about the book is that i encounter so many people all the time coming out of like conservative evangelicalism which is where i came out of and as they're coming out of that, they're like, all right, I know I reject all of these types of politics, and I, but I don't know where to start. Like, I don't know where to begin to actually uh, kind of have the politics and do the kind of work that I, I hope for in the world that is trying to undo the kind of work that I was doing when I was a conservative evangelical, right? I get so many people that are asking themselves that question. And what I love about this book is there's so many practical ways for people to start to get involved in their communities. And you really lay that out in just really easy to understand ways. And I I just think that type of work is so important. And so I'm really grateful for you all writing uh, that book and writing the book in that way. Well, the gift and the... um frustration of that is that uh the list is will sound familiar which is um going to places where people are hungry and going to places where people are in prison and going to places where people are sick and going to places you know if you're if you're uh, on your way out of the evangelical church and you encounter this list that baldwin is pushing you toward it's gonna it's gonna be a pretty familiar list right last question adam and jamie how can listeners get connected to you and your work 
So we mentioned that the there was an earlier version of this project where we did 30 days of prayer with James Baldwin. And so you can go to prayingwithjamesbaldwin.com and you can still download the original project of prayers and you can find more information about the book there and events and things like that. And um, we're on socials as Praying Baldwin and um, we'd love to interact with you in in the, you know, in social media or in actual human media. <laughs> and where can people get the book or where would you recommend people getting the book? We'll recommend a local independent bookstore, hopefully. I mean, also it's available just about every retailer online, but here's a challenge. Just go to your local independent cute bookstore uh, and just walk in and meet someone there. I love it. I love it. And just, just the way you guys describe some of these things, it's just so relational. Meet somebody, get to know somebody. And a lot of times, obviously that's not the work in and of itself, uh, but, or an end onto itself, but it certainly is a major part of the work is just get to know somebody and who knows what might happen in the world. You're right. Who knows? I love that. Love that. Yeah, we, we, we ended up with a book. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, uh, Jamie and Adam, thank you so much for writing the book. It's just an incredible book. Uh, again, I, I think this is the book where, again, if somebody asks me, I don't know where to begin in doing some of this justice work in my community. This is probably the first recommendation I'm going to give them. I mean, th this is so great. So, and they also get to learn a little bit more about James Baldwin in the process, which is awesome as well. So thank you so much for writing it and uh, talking a little bit more about it. Thank you for having us. It's been a boss. Yeah. Thanks for having us. If you'd like to connect with Jamie and Adam and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>